Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Yeah man, I'm good. Um, I have survived the deluge, the biblical deluge that hit my hometown of Sheffield um, Mm. this week and made the news. People getting stuck and stranded and all sorts, it's dangerous out there. You should be very careful. Mm, yeah, just members of Arctic Monkeys just floating away. Mm, yeah, Sean no Bean. Yeah, no one's seen Matt Helm for, for weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, who knows where he is. Reverend survived, but the makers? No yep. hope. Yeah, wanted posters everywhere. <laughs> the only time they've ever been wanted. There you go, that's yeah. satire, kind of like laying into a band who had a were last relevant, questionably relevant you know, 12 years ago. Mm, yeah, during that brief period of time where you could go to, or like you'd go on a night out in Sheffield and you'd go see a local band and then everyone would be like, that's someone from the NME. Mm. And like they'd always be there kind of trying to see who was going to be the next Sheffield band to make it big. And um turned out it was none of them. It was none of them, yeah. There was some serious coattail riding. Mm. Um But no, no one, no one finally got there, did they? No, I mean, like, Long Blondes were a very good band and they mm. like put out a couple of very good albums and then unfortunately, you know, kind of the, the health problems meant that the band ended up splitting up. I think they were the kind of the closest because obviously um, they had a couple of hits and critically they're very well liked, but that was very much the sense of, oh, this was a band that just kind of existed anyway who don't sound anything like Arctic Monkeys and are just kind of like doing their own thing. Whereas, yeah, like, I don't know, Milburn, <laughs> that mm. was one. Um, who I remember mainly because one of their songs included a reference to the street I lived on at the time, which was very weird. Mm. Welcome to the Sheffield Music Cast, uh, <laughs> in which me and Ed talk about largely forgotten bands that have no relevance at all to anyone. This week, yeah, the Backhanded Compliments, who were the... Uh, <laughs> they were the band that were... Well, they were only the band that Milburn could have been. <laughs> to, to paraphrase Mr. Partridge. And I think they were actually made from the remnants of Milburn. So mm. if you can imagine a, a diluted Milburn, <laughs> you've just imagined <laughs> the music of the backhanded compliments. God, what are we wow. talking about? What's going on? I don't know. Uh, we're filming TV, I guess. Uh, we're going to go through the news uh, in a second. Emily will be uh, joining later. Me, uh, She and I will be talking about our main topic this week. Uh, we couldn't find a time for all three of us to record that that worked. So uh, you and I are going to cover the news and Emily and I are going to do the, the main topic. So leap straight into the news. We've been off for a few weeks. So there's a few stories that happened in the intervening uh, days that I think we want to just kind of touch on. Probably the biggest, other than the like, Scorsese Marvel thing, but we've already talked about this like the last two episodes, so I don't I don't want to like... talk about it ever, ever again. I'm embarrassed yeah. by the whole affair. Yeah, so there's no need to relitigate it. But one of the biggest stories that happened in the intervening time was uh, that uh, David Benioff and D.B. Weiss were kicked off of the Star Wars trilogy that they're working on. Obviously, this is old news, but, you know, we've talked about Game of Thrones a lot on this 
program we've talked about star wars an awful lot and you know this is obviously a confluence of our interests and it seemed like uh, like a fairly huge story considering like i think a lot of people who didn't like the last season of game of thrones complained about the fact that they seemed to be wanting to rush out the door in order to make their star wars movie you know like all this talk about how hbo essentially said to them take as long as you like you know, have as many hours of television you want. And they were like, nope, we're going to do it in six and everything's going to be fine. Um, so there was this, this general sense that, you know, they screwed up in some people's estimation. They screwed up their, you know, this genre defining uh, epochal television program in order to go and make some Star Wars movies. And then turned out that um, they're not going to make those Star Wars movies anymore. And uh, I kind of find it, given the recent history of, uh, Disney and Lucasfilm, you know, hiring directors and then firing them at various stages of development is maybe not that surprising, but this feels like, you know, the most high-profile version of this so far. Yeah, and it's it leads me to believe one of two things. One, um, Lucasfilm and Disney know exactly what they want, and after Solo and how that seemed to be heading towards a disaster and ended up being less of a disaster, but still pretty bad. Mm. They, they, the, the first conclusion is they know exactly what they're doing and they kind of really want to get things right and are very exacting about how they want to go about it. The second theory is it's anyone's guess what's happening because mm. there's been, since Disney bought Lucasfilm, there has been what, like eight projects in development? And I think more than half of them have had the director or creatives removed or leave uh, mm-hmm. or, you know, we, you know, or has been changed or developed in a different way completely out of keeping what it started with. I mean, people are very excited about the, the Kenobi show with Ewan McGregor coming back, but that was supposed to be a movie and they had it quite far down the line in development. And if you believe what some people say they were kind of starting to build sets for it. Mm. Um, and then that got kind of trashed and then it is now a six part mini series on Disney plus, but yeah, it's, it's kind of crackers and they, I mean, to, they had actually stepped a little bit back from the project anyway. They were supposed they to had be, a deal with Netflix, Netflix, which is the big thing, which is in the official line from Lucasfilm and, and, and D and D says that is what they're citing as the, the irreconcilable difference. Mm. is that they signed a, and let's not forget, quarter of a billion dollar deal with Netflix to make stuff for them. And that was announced a couple of months after they got the Star Wars gig, maybe. And that just seems odd to take money from someone to do something very big and then take way more money from their direct competitor and to do something else. So I think a few months after that had become clear they said they weren't writing the whole trilogy. They were just going to write the first one and be kind Mm. of executive producers on the other three. And then we get the news that they have stepped off um, a couple of weeks ago. But the timing of it was really interesting because it came Mm. out literally two days after that panel where it's hard to tell whether they were being flippant or glib, but they came across as total assholes and did not endear themselves to anyone who would kind of want to give these people power responsibility and money because they essentially said in this panel about game of thrones that they were 
it well, it certainly came across in in the kind of disseminated versions of the information that we all received that they were kind of saying, well, it was just a big expensive film school for us. We had no idea what we were doing. Aren't we lucky to be, you know, two privileged white guys who can just have that opportunity and not ever dream of it having been snatched away from them at any point? which didn't go down very well to the general public and also to lots of creators who do have trouble getting projects off the ground or do have trouble being given that responsibility. That is not to say that for people who didn't know what they were doing, they pulled off some remarkable series of television. Um, But that seems beside the point. If you're going to thank your lucky stars, that's not the way to do it. Yeah, I think there's always been, like whenever you see interviews with them, there has always been kind of a an air of arrogance to them that in some cases you get, you know, they're very, very successful. They've obviously made this show that means a lot to a lot of people. There's been a global phenomenon. You can, you know, you can feel a bit confident and a little bit full of yourself, but like that, I think there is a point at which that can really curdle. And at least, you know, like say based on how the information from that panel came out, it kind of felt like that was the moment for a lot of people when it turned on them, even though I think, like some of the things they said were not necessarily like that bad. Like I remember one of the things that was brought up was they talked about like, oh, you know, like we, you know, gave a lot of freedom to like the costume designers and things like that. You know, like they were not as like involved in like the design and the the day-to-day stuff, which you can think, well, that was like some of the strongest stuff on Game of Thrones <laughs> in a lot of the time was how good everything looked and how real the world felt and kind of felt like that's because they gave people who knew what they were doing a free hand. But then, yeah, a lot of the other time it seemed to be them saying like, yeah, we'd never really made a TV show before and uh, we made a, t- a pilot, which was, you know, by all accounts, not very good. And, uh, you know, we shot a second one and it was all, yeah, it, it kind of seemed like a, a real mess. Um, from what they were describing and one that you know resulted in some great television for for a couple of years at least Mm. but it definitely kind of came across you know reading those responses that like they like you say it sounded like they didn't know what they were doing and obviously you know they they it seems that they had been off star wars for quite a while before the announcements was made but yeah the the optics of that were really really funny <laughs> did kind of make it seem as if someone in uh you know kathy kennedy was scrolling through twitter one day and was like what the fuck have we done we need to get these guys as far away from star wars as possible mm, i think i did make a joke as the end of season eight of game of thrones kind of happened and i was just like somewhere kathy kennedy is is thinking about book of henry all over again and (laughs) yeah she it seems yeah i mean i I don't know whether that does play a part in it but then also there was a kind of report that they said they were kind of the response to game of thrones had maybe put them off doing a star wars movie where the fans can be a little Mm, well mm -hmm. embarrassing and yeah yeah just kind of given that the response that a a a kind of very vocal minority of fans have to everything that would but that would that be enough to put you off like having just some dicks on the internet say you ruined my childhood uh, I guess it depends on how online you are to begin with. Um, yeah. Maybe you need to cloister yourself away and kind of get off social media like Damon Lindelof did for a while after mm. uh, after Lost uh, kind of aired its finale. Like that seems to be the, the way to do it. But yeah, I feel like that's more kind of like them throwing out a load of secondary stuff 
to you know kind of be like ah you know like we didn't really want it like yeah it seems like it'd be too much hassle as opposed to being like you know maybe we bit off more than we could chew and then like netflix deal that we signed was like complicating things too much because there was also i was reading a report saying that apparently one of the stipulations in the netflix deal was that they would have to be on set for any of the shows that they made like not all the time but at least some of the time Mm -hmm. which is like a requirement that's very hard to do if you're working on star wars and you don't meant to be you know writing and directing and producing all this other stuff so i that to me seems more like them say coming up with a bunch of extra stuff that kind of sounds like yeah i could see why this would be a problem and you would want to walk away from this it sounds like it'd be a real nightmare the to kind of paper over like all the other like more boring reasons for why they didn't end up doing which is you know all business related stuff and also like the super embarrassing thing of like maybe what they were turning in was like not very good and kathleen kennedy was having uh second thoughts about it all mm, yeah it does beg the question as to what's going to happen with that because they whilst they probably shouldn't announce who's doing things and when they're doing it until they're 100 percent sure they want to go through with it a um, week after the film's out yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> when the first reviews start rolling in um <laughs> They announced the dates. They did not mm. announce who would be doing them, but yeah. they seemed to strongly suggest, or it didn't come in the announcement, it came in like an investor call or something, that the three dates they announced would be the trilogy for kind of films that they were going to do. Now, weirdly, this gives a bit of credence to a kind of very cryptic interview that Ryan Johnson's been giving on, well, not being, not been doing it repeatedly, but he gave on the, <laughs> on the kind of press tour for Knives Out where they mm. said, when's your Star Wars trilogy happening? And he said, oh, I'm just waiting for them to figure it out at Lucasfilm. And everyone was like, oh, is this an admission that he's been fired or he's leaving? And then two weeks later, this news comes out and you're like, yeah, I guess they probably are just figuring it out because they've just had two people walk away from doing a trilogy of which they'd already announced the dates for. Mm. Yeah, it definitely seems like they had both of those. That, that was always the weird thing because obviously his was announced before The Last Jedi came out and then theirs was announced sort of around about the same time and it was like, I know you're going in or all in on Star Wars, but it seems weird to be developing two trilogies that are going to be unrelated to each other within the same universe that presumably are going to like release in alternate years or something. Like it all seemed wildly ambitious and, you know, maybe uh, overly complicated. So... And I say this as someone who loves Star Wars, but maybe there's just too much Star Wars. Yeah, I think they are realizing that as well, based on you know the the clip that they decide which they decided to release those movies. Uh, you know, obviously the the Boondoggle of Solo being the worst example of that. Setting aside even you know the the quality of the movie, which is like fine. Mm. Um, <laughs> fine but in that specific tone of voice yeah of like it's got to have a pause before it it's fine yeah i just kind of like you know how was that fish and chips you had from a, a truck at two in the morning it was fine, fine. yeah i was i was very drunk and it didn't make me sick i don't have compiler back to which yeah. is what what should be on the on the poster for Solo. I saw it, and I don't have Compiler Bacta, so... Yeah. Is he one of the characters? Every... 
I'll just put some apostrophes in there. He will be. <laughs> oh, there you go. There's a nerdy deep cut. But uh, yeah, so like it, 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 you know, even setting aside the the quality of the final product, you know, that movie came out less than five months after the, the Last Jedi. Like the Last Jedi, Last Jedi was probably still in some theaters when Solo came out, and you know, considering how you know, one of the advantages that the Star Wars movies had, you know, for the first three they put out was there's this sense of always oh, a sense of occasion. You get one a year, which is still like way more than we'd ever had Star Wars in the past. Um, but it come out one a year, it's this big special event, happens at Christmas. Oh, how exciting. But then like, oh, we just had one and another one's coming out and it's May? What why should I care about any of this? You know, it really kind of took the luster out of it. And, you know, maybe they're realizing that they can't do with Star Wars what, you know, they've done with Marvel. Mm. Where like Marvel can kind of like churn out one, two, three movies a year because they've got so many characters and so much stuff that they can kind of do around the edges and all these people they can introduce, whereas Star Wars is kind of always been tied into the the Skywalker story. And, you know, when you try and fill in some of the blanks around that, people just aren't really interested in that much stuff. So they they maybe feel like they have to be a little more cautious. And this maybe stems from that. And also whatever ends up happening with Ryan Johnson's trilogy also stems from it, where they're kind of thinking maybe we've overextended ourselves and we need to maybe do less Star Wars stuff in the cinema, you know, do stuff like The Mandalorian and Rebels, you know, like take it to television, expand the story there. Mm, yeah, I think that would probably be better. Yeah, because then, like, you get probably a huge number of people watching those shows on Disney Plus. But then, you know, every year, every two years or something, everyone's like, "Oh man, there's a new Star Wars coming out," and everyone gets excited for it again. Like, everyone's really excited for uh, Rise of Skywalker. Wait, that's what it's called, isn't it? It is. Rise yeah. Yeah, I was just kind of thinking that doesn't sound like a real name of a movie. <laughs> um, that seems like a placeholder. But everyone's like. Certainly, uh, everyone in, in my office is super excited for it. People have been buying tickets in advance, you know, like huge pre-sales for it now that they're available. I've got mine, go just saying. Yeah. And that is, I think that's in large part because it it will have been 15, 16 months between the last, you know, the Solo and uh, the Rise of Skywalker. Like there's been a decent chunk of time between Star Wars's and that's quite exciting. Mm, weird though that, between the start of the Mandalorian airing and the end of the Mandalorian airing, we would have spent more time with the Mandalorian. Mandalorian. I keep saying it wrong. The Mandalorian. (laughs) We would have spent more time with him than we have with all of the other characters put together. Yeah, that is weird. That's that's a weird thing, right? (laughs) It would be over in in like a month and a half or whatever. Yeah, that uh, that is super strange. Hmm. Quite exciting though, because you know it's obviously familiar stuff in some regards in terms of like the the style of storytelling or whatever. But you know it's it is genuinely kind of new Star Wars stuff. It seems. Yeah, we're living in a world where Carl Weathers has been in Star Wars more than uh, Harrison Ford. Hmm. Yeah. And Werner Herzog as well. Oh, yeah. Well, that that was always destined to happen, wasn't it? That's, yeah. that's it been to. on the cars for ages. Yeah. Our next story, and yeah, you know, just a very quick, very quick one. Uh, we're getting another Spider Verse movie. Very excited about that. I loved the first one. I'm, I've always, I just love Spider Man. It's always been one of my favorite comic book 
characters and all the various media that I've consumed of his over over time. I loved what they did with the with Miles Morales and you know introducing all the different universes and the different kinds of Spider Mans. And I am really really excited to see what they do with that again especially you know it's going to come out in 2022 i believe so they've got plenty of time to break animation all over again as they did on the first movie yeah i'm thrilled about it because it's good that they announced that they're doing it after martin scorsese confirmed that it is cinema Mm -hmm. um, because that's the one superhero movie he does like but let's be honest it is by far the best superhero movie ever made um, mm-hmm. And if you want to talk about kind of mainstream pop culture crossing over into art that, again, reflexively comments in on itself about being about superhero movies and being a incredibly clever comment on that and the state of the pop cultural landscape, plus also being a very good superhero movie, then yes, that is the best superhero movie ever made. And I'm glad it's getting a sequel. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Scorsese. <laughs> Which is the new Thanks Obama. <laughs> yeah, he just loves that spider hat. He, do- <laughs> he does. He smells a delicious pie. <laughs> a story from this week, more recent one, just the most horrifying story of the year when it comes to cinema. Uh, James Dean is back. He has been cast in a new movie a mere 65 years after he died. It's uh, a Vietnam War movie where the people involved have decided they want to cast him using CGI. And uh, this, understandably, has generated just nothing but horrified reactions from just about everyone to the bafflement of the film's director who put out a statement saying, like, oh, we know thought we wanted to be a gimmick. We didn't understand why everyone uh, <laughs> is so mad, which is weird because, like, reading it, it's kind of like just imagining, like, a version of Frankenstein that has, like, a press statement at the end. It's like, I didn't know why anyone <laughs> would care about bringing the dead back. They were bodies. What were they doing? They were... Just, you know, they were just kept rotting in the ground. Yeah, it's valuable real estate. Yeah. <laughs> we can free up. Just cast just cast James Franco. He's available. <laughs> <laughs> let's 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 say that the corpse of uh, James Dean is less problematic than James <laughs> Franco. Brilliant. But still, it's like it's just like there's just something it's almost hard to articulate just how gross it is, the idea of being like this actor died horribly, um tragically young made only three movies and a bunch of, you know, TV appearances is this kind of like icon of, of American cinema. And someone's been like, what we need to do is we need to use computers to put him in another movie. It just seems like super, super weird and disturbing. But um, I got a laugh out of it because uh, as I was talking to you beforehand, I've been watching a lot of um, on cinema at the cinema recently, kind of catching up on that insane uh, universe. And um there are two jokes in it that weirdly parallel this, one of which is that James Dean is a character in On Cinema. <laughs> Greg Turkington introduces an old man who claims to be James Dean, having faked his death. And then there's a, <laughs> there's a plot line in the show where Tim Heidecker's character becomes an anti-vaxxer mm. and he refuses to have his son vaccinated and he dies. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And then during one of their Oscar specials, he has a team of people bring their... Imagine what their son would look like if he grew up and then has him show up <laughs> to say how much he loves his mum. And it's super gross and disturbing because it's just kind of like, this is just like a nightmare situation for everyone involved. And all I could think of was those two jokes when I was uh, reading the James Dean story because both of them are just like... it just, just at its core, there's something deeply unsettling about it. 
Mm. It's weird as well that like James Dean is being resurrected to make a Vietnam War movie, and he, he didn't even live to see the Vietnam War. Yeah, let alone be in a movie about it. Yeah, it's yeah, it's just super gross, and uh, hopefully it won't happen because it's a grim harbinger of our digital future. Like a lot of people compared it to that um, that movie, The Congress, with Robin Wright Penn, which is all about like actors having their digital license taken away from them and being put in uh, movies kind of against their will. And yeah, it just is. It's weird that that movie <laughs> kind of seems to be coming true in that respect, uh, and it kind of even if it ends up not happening you know it, it makes me wonder now if like every actor in hollywood is going to be like trying to frantically rewrite every contract that they've ever they sign going forward being like please for the love of god do not use my likeness in a movie after i die mm, yeah yeah i seem to remember like probably maybe like 15 years ago or something there was a very um kind of concerted push to release colorized versions of of movies and mm. unlike this there were some real names behind it i think like like spielberg and lucas and you know some of the the kind of big players in in film preservation and stuff were on it and then the the public reaction was so negative that it got, got dropped and shelved very very quickly and when i first heard this i was like oh god is this going to be like a new thing with studios trying to you know milk their old stars from beyond the grave but it just seems like the 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 kind of idea of one rogue operative mm, yeah but someone someone must hold his rights though surely yeah well i think they had to get the they had to get permission from his estate and there's not a lot of material to work with i mean they could have picked no. a more they could have picked like christopher lee or something he's got he's got a lot more films yeah i think also i think it was caden garner on uh twitter shared this there was like a south african car advert or something that was like 10 years ago that also used james dean's images and like created this like narrative and all the existing footage of him to make it seem like he was really into this car or whatever mm-hmm. and i was just kind of like i just watched that and that was like super duper crass it's, this isn't like the first thing that's happened there was that I think it was another car advert that had like they reused uh, images of Audrey Hepburn to make it seem like she was into products. So like this is something that people have been doing for a while. I think every time everyone just kind of like, I don't know, shudders or whatever, you know, kind of like a chill runs down the spine. But I feel like this one is like, this felt like magnitude worse because it's not like you digitally recreate Peter Cushing for a handful of scenes in Rogue One uh, or, you know, you just have uh, Gene Kelly dance to Singing in the Rain again, but you know the the remix mm. um, for like an advert for these like brief things uh, that feel like kind of experimental or whatever. This is like, oh yeah, we're gonna construct an entire film around a guy who's dead, or you know, in a supporting role. I think like I don't know if the, I don't think he was meant to be the lead, but even so, like there just have been something like if it, if it happens, there's gonna be something like deeply weird and unsettling about it. Mm. I, I'm starting to feel like it might have been a publicity stunt for the guy who's making this movie. Yeah. It's yeah, starting despite, to feel that way. Yeah, like what's what's gonna get attention for like the seven thousandth Vietnam War movie that's ever been made? Yeah, yeah. What's gonna generate cause if you think about it, it is a really stupid thing to do other than to get attention to yourself. Yeah. It's not a productive or logical way to make a film to have a you know, a supporting role played by someone who died 
60 years ago and you've only got three films to mangle their footage together with CGI, yeah, you may as well cast like Ron Jeremy or something. Do you know what I mean? Because you'll get the same amount of traction. Uh, I have to assume that... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I just like thinking like the, the thing that'd be really hard would be the voice. Mm. Like, would it just be like loads and loads of really awkwardly edited together like when they did those episodes of South Park after Isaac Hayes left? <laughs> Where yeah. it's just like just bits of syllables coming in. It's like we are under fire. Yeah, you know, it'd be like, or would you like get a sound like, which is even weirder? I mean, guess get, Ma- get Mark Hamill to do it. Oh yeah, he's great. He's great at voices. <laughs> uh, and now I guess we're into the the streaming uh, block. There's lots of streaming news that's happening currently. Uh, probably the biggest, at least for this week, is the launch or soft launch of Apple Plus. Mm. That their TV service, uh, their streaming service, which has got a couple of originals, most of which have been very indifferently received. Probably the most acclaimed so far is uh, For All Mankind, the alternate reality space race show where the Russians land on the moon first, which has been getting some kind of very, very good reviews and people seem to praise it for its ambition. The Morning Show, a show that costs way too much money <laughs> because mm. the cast of Wildly Expensive has been kind of getting mixed reviews. Uh, there's a show with Jason Momoa called C, which I think everyone says is like just a complete boondoggle and kind of can't believe exists. Um, oh, actually, I think the most the most acclaimed by far is definitely Dickinson, reimagined life of Emily Dickinson starring Hayley Steinfeld, which everyone seems to think is like a real kind of bold and exciting and interesting show. Mm. Um, so it's a mixed a mixed bag to begin with, but uh, you know also kind of just seems kind of weird. No one seems that excited about. Apple doing a, a, a streaming service, I think, either because the strength of their lineup's not great to begin with, and they don't have like the deepest bench as far as a back catalogue goes, but also because like there's so many streaming services, and maybe some of the ones on the horizon seem a little more enticing to people. Mm, well, I can tell you, Ed, as a subscriber to Apple Plus, um, which I am, um, oh. but only because um, the other I stuff got... you get through it. I got, no, I got it for free. I just received an email which said, your new iPhone allows you a free year's subscription to Apple Plus. Would you like it? And I said, yes. Uh, And I clicked it and said, I will definitely remember to cancel that next year. (laughs) And (laughs) Yeah, that seems to be the advantage that they have is like, you know, huge base of people who just have it from phones and stuff yeah so um i thought it was going to get bundled in with um apple music which i do Mm. use um but it isn't it's just on there but yeah so i've got it for a year for free but the real shitter is you can't actually watch it on anything but unless you've got an apple tv um Mm. you can't watch it on like a fire stick you can't watch it on your playstation you can't watch it any other way like so my choice is i can watch on my phone Uh, Or I can sit in my basement where I'm sitting now and watch it on my computer, which I don't really want to do, if I'm honest. Yeah, it seems to be very, very limiting in that respect. And obviously, you know, all the nice reviews and, you know, kind of like subscriber base in the world aren't going to be that much, aren't going to be worth anything if at the end of the day you then say, oh, you have to spend, what is it, like $100 to buy the thing that lets you watch this. You know, mm. as opposed to Netflix, which you can get on pretty much anything that allows you to stream video. Disney Plus, I imagine, is probably going to be widely available on everything. Probably the same for HBO Max. Mm-hmm. Like, 
Apple being, you know, so tied to their own tech whilst giving them like like you know, giving them a big subscriber base potentially just on the people who own their stuff already also seems to be like a real barrier to entry for, you know, enticing people who aren't already part of the Apple flock. Yeah. And I mean, I have a lot of Apple products, um, mm. but as do I. Yeah. But again, like not an Apple TV, it's not something that is part of, of my setup. And when you've got everything that goes through a certain thing, you probably should, you know, make a concession to do things. I think I just saw a news article this week that Disney plus have struck a deal with Amazon to get it on the fire stick, which is, mm. you know, because otherwise they'd be cutting off the nose to spite the face unless, until they release the Disney stick, <laughs> you know, which is is likely. Mm, yeah, it's uh, one of the Fantasia brooms. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just wedge that in the back there. Uh, or you can have mm. it like any of your favourite um, sidekicks with a little chameleon from Tangled maybe, just goes in the back of your telly. His tongue mm. does, amazing. <laughs> yep, stick a booze tail in there. Yep, yep, that'll work. All the options. <laughs> Sorry, you dropped out for a second there. Oh no, no, I was. Uh, that's very rude of me. I'm trying to. Uh, I'm trying to get Apple TV to work on my phone, um, and it doesn't. I don't want. I don't. I really don't want to watch it on my phone. That's that's a terrible idea. Although you seem to be able to watch ITV and lots of other networks on here. So like BFI Player and Stars and Arrow TV, Movie, they're all on Apple TV. Mm, but yeah, Apple TV isn't available on any of those things. That seems very silly to me. Very silly. Yeah, I think that's a uh, problem that's like they're they're trying to be similar to what Hulu has over here, where Hulu offers you the choice to like subscribe to a bunch of other services. Like you can get HBO through Hulu, you can get Stars and Cinemax and things through Hulu. Like they're they're trying to be, you know, we are both providing our own original content, but we're also a hub for which you can get other people's content which makes sense for hulu which at least initially was you know kind of a collaborative endeavor between a bunch of different networks and is now largely owned by disney Mm. um as so many things are but makes less sense for apple which is kind of getting into the original content game to begin with because like hulu initially was just like yeah we just show all the shows that everyone else makes and then they gradually started introducing their own stuff. Uh, it does feel very weird to start off being like, we have some of our own original stuff and you can also pay to, or you can also watch other people's stuff that you actually might prefer to watch. It just like comes from a, starting from a place of inferiority a little bit there. Mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In other streaming news, uh, Kevin Feige was talking about some of the Marvel tv shows that are forthcoming and um said that because obviously there are characters from the movies that are going to be in some of the shows one division uh obviously is kind of like one of the big ones you know that's kind of continuing the story of vision and scarlet witch and scarlet witch is going to be in the next doctor strange movie so they said like oh yeah if you want to kind of really get everything that's going on in doctor strange you need to watch wandavision and kind of seem to be hinting at the possibility that if anyone wants to kind of understand what a lot of the movies coming out in the next couple of years are going to be about you're going to need to kind of keep up on the uh the tv shows which to me kind of brings back memories of like comics in the 90s where everything became super duper like 
complicated and everything was overlapped and that ended up with Marvel going bankrupt. <laughs> so it's perhaps not the best thing to invoke. Uh, obviously, you know, Marvel's a huge monolith at the moment, you know, this huge part of pop culture. Um, but it does make me wonder how much that approach could hurt them because obviously there's a there's a core group of fans who will watch everything marvel does and will keep up but for like you know most people i feel like go and watch them because they're big movies and they enjoy that they, they enjoy them but it's not like you know um agents of shield was like a huge pop, a pop culture phenomenon that everyone watched in order to keep with the movies you know like and that was on a network that anyone can watch so it seems very weird that they were kind of like make that claim now when it just seems like the sort of thing that will probably get abandoned when they realize that a lot of people don't really care that much about the broader marvel thing they just like going to go watch the movies because they're big events Mm, i think some of the best kind of secondary or supplementary stuff for this is helps it helps add to the world rather than is integral to so mm. without having to drag the conversation back to Star Wars, um, but obviously since doing the Disney kind of buyout, the Disney have made all books and comics and games and everything that happens part of the canon. So mm. there's a ton of books. There's like, you know, a book or a comic or something that counts as being part of the overall story every month comes out. And the thing is, is that none of those things are integral. You don't need to read those things. But if you did, they would add a little something. But yeah. they're not certainly not integral. They're not going to just throw something into one of the movies and be like, I've got no idea who that person is. Oh, yeah, they were introduced in like the third comic of a series that came out three years ago that you have absolutely yeah. no idea about. So, yeah, I think that approach is good and it can be rewarding to fans who want to dig and put the time in. But to make mm. it a requirement seems silly. Yeah, because the one time the star wars movies did do that recently which obviously you know about because you watched the the tv series but darth maul being in solo Mm -hmm. i feel like that was one of those ones where for obviously people who had been keeping up with the the cartoon shows and everything that was not a surprise obviously it just confirms something and makes canonical in the main movie something that had been the case for for a fairly long time that darth maul survived Phantom Menace is kind of keeps living in the in-between time between the prequel trilogy and the, the, the first trilogy. But for most people, it was just like this really baffling thing that everyone was like, why? That we saw that guy get cut in half. <laughs> What's going on? Uh, people can't tell, but I'm doing the Travolta gif that hands mm. kind of unintentionally. But there's like, oh yeah, that's that's the only reaction really. And and it is it's just it it's a thing that, you know, obviously knowing that was going on would enrich that sort of thing but in in the moment it just feels really weird and out of place and it feels like if you went all in on that approach of being like yeah you have to keep up with the tv shows at a certain point the movies which at this point are already kind of byzantine and i feel like endgame you know was about the limit of what you could push in terms of like this is a movie that just about makes sense if you only watched every other one of these movies was probably nonsense if you have decided just to watch this thing because it's like the biggest thing ever. Mm. Uh, if if everything kind of becomes like that, you know, I doubt that the Marvel movies would necessarily start flopping or anything. But it could you could see it as being like a barrier to entry at exactly the point when you know two of their biggest characters are no longer part of the universe anymore. 
they are kind of trying to get a lot of new characters off the ground like maybe having this kind of barrier to entry would make them a little more unappealing to you know people who are you know, like the next generation of, of potential marvel fans you know people who are kids now who are just going to kind of starting to get into the movies as they enter phase phase four or five whatever we're in mm, yeah yeah so I, I think he did retract or walk it back a little bit mm-hmm. um in the, the kind of the week that followed but yeah i think that is is it in their interest to build a universe which relies on everything so uh, do they think that if people who watch the films are told they have to see the TV series, they'll subscribe to like Disney Plus and then beat it, or is that is that a reach? I think that's I definitely think that's part of it. I feel like that is they are maybe understandably, because it's a big new venture they're going on, maybe a little bit nervous about the question of whether or not people would follow these characters from the movies to the TV shows, particularly if they are you know, kind of supporting characters who are now being bumped up to leads or whatever. And they're thinking, well, what can we do to make sure that people like at least sample these things and try them out and, you know, kind of make these shows a success. And, you know, the the logical thing would be to be to try and make the connection to the movies even stronger. Um, And this is, yeah, this is probably like a way of doing that, but also maybe not the most helpful one. Because essentially you do run the risk of alienating people either because they think, oh, that sounds like too much effort or making people kind of like resentful because they're like, yeah, I just like the movies. I don't want to have to do all this extra legwork in order to enjoy them, especially because I think the strength of the Marvel movies for pretty much the entirety of the, you know, certainly since Iron Man, is that they have a fairly low barriers entry and they're fairly accessible and very much kind of like hey you know just come in and if you don't understand anything right away you know that things will make sense fairly soon and that seems like having them having people have to go and you know keep track of five different tv shows uh in order to enjoy two movies that are going to come out in a year's time or whatever probably isn't terribly great in kind of uh keeping things simple and making sure that the they maintain the momentum they've had so far. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so that's that's the news for this week, and now uh, we'll pass it over to me and Emily for the main subject. Mm, bye. And so now uh, I'm joined by Emily to do the the main topic this week. Before we get into it, Emily, how are you? I'm doing all right, thanks, Ed. Yeah, uh, just sliding into hibernation because it is cold and mm. dark in the part of the world that I'm in, which, you know, is fine by me, but apparently I have to still go to work when all I want to do yeah. is just get fat like a bear and then emerge in my uh, slimmer chrysalis in spring. Is that not allowed? <laughs> yeah, I think capitalism doesn't allow that, unfortunately. Oh, again, I mean, this capitalism <laughs> thing, Ed, I'm really, I'm really starting to have uh, doubts about it. Mm, I, think, I think we need to give it another, like, 100 years. Yeah, like it's, they're just kind of working the kinks out of it this yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, it's it's a little bit cooler here in Florida now. It's autumnal, which is to say that it's only like seventy degrees Fahrenheit, which is what 
17 or 18 degrees celsius or something like that it feels colder than usual but it's like yeah. not actually cold but in the morning it can be quite crisp and quite nice particularly if, because i like to walk to work every day yes. um, it's it's nicer walking in at this time of year than it is at like the height of summer uh, even if it's not actually cold and i feel like a total wimp being like oh no i need to put on a hoodie or something and yeah. it's like this in the grand scheme of things is not cold but yes, so our main topic this week is uh, films that are about their stars or films that have some sort of like meta element to them in, in their casting. Uh, this was inspired by the movie Gemini Man, Ang Lee's Gemini Man, which is now lost to history. <laughs> <laughs> a, movie, a movie that came out me a week ago and feels like it. Uh, it's, I don't know, Midnight in London or whatever. But it's uh, a movie that I, I, I talked about a little bit on the show a, a, a while ago now and I think I was a little harsh initially because I've been thinking about it more and I kind of feel a little more warmly to it than I did uh, initially um, but but one of the things about it that I find really interesting in considering it and, and uh, a, a nod of the hat to uh, tip of the hat to um, the Blank Check podcast to discuss this a fair bit when they did their episode on it uh, one of the things that's really interesting to me in it is the casting of Will Smith in two roles in the movie. One is his kind of like older self, you know, him as he looks now, and one is his younger self where he has been kind of like they've created a digital recreation of him circa kind of like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and how Angley kind of uses that in this interesting way to comment on the nature of movie stardom and the fact that movie stars, once they reach a certain point in their careers you know, there's that sense that really the only people they're competing against are themselves and their own legacy uh, because, you know, they, they kind of aren't really being necessarily compared to, to other contemporaries or whatever or younger stars. It's really just about what is this guy doing now or, this, or what are the, this person doing now compared to what they were doing in the past and, you know, the story of an assassin being chased down by someone who is essentially the younger version of themselves kind of like lends it to that. I, I thought it'd be interesting to kind of like talk about other movies where the casting kind of clearly has this meta uh, undercurrent to them of saying where, where the director has cast someone specifically because the relationship the audience has to that person will bring some sort of added depth to the to the to the movie in general mm. another example of, of kind of like a recent movie um that came out a few years ago and is kind of like it, it's not like a, a great movie but it's, oh, it's very charming was uh david larry's the old man and the gun where you you know you cast robert redford who's obviously you know an icon of sort of late 20th century American filmmaking, uh, an, a movie star of a kind of an older generation being cast as a bank robber who is kind of the last vestige of a kind of more gentlemanly approach to crimes. Like the, there's this real sense that, you know, there's kind of like a gleam in his eye and he's really enjoying what he's doing as a bank robber. But, you know, a lot of the emotional weight of that movie really rests on the fact that, you know, if you're watching it, you're you know, young, young people probably aren't watching The Old Man and the Gun. It's mainly people who remember Robert Redford from his earlier roles. And, you know, that connection is drawn out in the movie because for flashbacks, they will use clips from earlier 
movies from Robert Redford's career to kind of like reinforce that connection between the you know the the, the actor and his fictional counterpart in the movie and uh, you know that's a movie that I think you know would work because it's you know it's, it's well written well directed with another actor but I think it wouldn't work nearly as well if you didn't have someone of Redford's kind of like stature or who with his uh you know the the relationship that he has to you know generations of audiences yeah for sure I think there's something kind of similar going on in The Big Lebowski Mm. with Jeff Bridges because I think there's kind of shot for shot uh there's not there's not many just a few sort of sprinkled through but with cutter and bone mm. which which is such a wonderful sunshine noir all set in santa barbara when jeff bridges is at the peak of his like gorgeous californian surf boy yeah um kind of image and then which i had no idea about because i was introduced to jeff bridges mainly through like um Mainly through the Big Lebowski, and mm. wasn't he in the Horse Whisperer? Am I getting that wrong? Uh, I feel like I, I honestly, it's been a very long time. I, is, I get the feeling Robert Redford's in that, but it could also be, could also be Bridges. No, you're right. That's, that's why I was thinking because I always get that confused for some reason. And then you were talking about Redford, and here we are uh, back at the beginning of my cognitive knot. Um, <laughs> Uh, so no, I know Jeff Bridges. Yeah, it must have been the Big Lebowski. I think there was something else family oriented that he must have been. Definitely feels like he's been in lots of movies with horses. That just he just gives off that vibe. Right. Oh no, I was thinking about Fly Away Home, but that's um, Jeff Daniels. Jeff Daniels. God damn it, Jeff! <laughs> Would you please make yourselves more memorable? I apologise. I'm sorry. It's totally my fault. But back to the point. In the Big Lebowski, there are these lovely references through basically shot for shot mock-ups of cutter and bone bits like when when the dude is in the bath and there's it's basically set up to be the same as jeff bridges and it's this lovely kind of meta homage texture to it because the dude is much more chilled out than jeff bridges is in (laughs) cutter and bone but the big lebowski is still looking at the um it's still it it's kind of saying look we appreciate that we're looking at these issues in maybe a sillier angle in terms of like post vietnam america and trying to find right and wrong and vigilante justice when it feels like nothing is being done and everyone's corrupt as hell but we we acknowledge kind of where this comes from and we mm. and we really respect it and actually we've got gravitas in our silly angle as well um so i think that is a particularly that that's a particularly nice piece of casting. Yeah, and and I think it is. It's also like super duper obscure in the sense, you know, like that earlier movie. It's not massively well known. Like it, yeah. I think it probably it's it's much beloved by cinephiles, and I know that it's one of those ones that I want to say I want to say that um, Matt and Ryan put it on for the. Um, uh, five and dime uh, at some point in the past like it has this like small cadre of people who are like really really big fans of it and i know that it i think it was given like a, a re-release a few years ago that got a lot of love um and that kind of 
it's it's kind of like a nice level of nod there where it's not like so distracting that people who are just coming to the big lebowski as yeah. the big lebowski as a as a comedy would be like distracted by it but for people who are like familiar with jeff bridges broader work they're kind of thinking ah they're doing something very clever there but not like overly clever in the way yeah. that i think some some cohen brothers uh movies can be yeah for sure yeah it's more subtle they do well they do subtle well even though they don't do it particularly often mm, yeah uh a movie that uh, came out fairly recently that uh, i have not had a chance to see yet mainly because like the one time that i had a day to three to go and watch it it was pretty much sold out <laughs> was uh judy starring uh, renee zellweger and that's the movie that i know that you went to see and that you, that you loved uh. and i think that one as well is kind of interesting in viewed from a, a meta t- uh angle because obviously judy garland uh, as a as a performer and as a kind of icon is is kind of defined by the fact that towards the end of her career she kind of like slipped from public view a little bit compared to where she had been and yeah obviously there's parallels there between her and, and Renee Zellweger mm, I think right first off I yes I loved Judy I was completely taken aback with how much I loved it I was not expecting to love it at all um even though I remember when we were talking about previews of, of films and uh when the trailer came out being intrigued not to the point where I was like this is definitely going to be amazing and I think what it did really well just talking about it as a film on its own merits first is that it focused on one specific period of her life rather than trying to do like a galloping filmed wikipedia article of, mm. of trying to get in everything chronologically it just focused on the most emotionally resonant and so we had kind of an opening of you know, we, we begin with judy as a child star which is nice because then the subsequent flashbacks don't feel like um <laughs> they don't feel as much like flashbacks because you start at that at that point that's your kicking off point and it gives you a framework for everything and I think what is so brilliant about Judy as a film and a, and a biopic in a very you know it's not a particularly revolutionary film in the way that it's told I think it's incredibly solid and it's quite it feels quite heritage but I think the thing that's <clears throat> the thing that's really striking about it is that it shows a very nuanced, it has a really nuanced appreciation of someone who was undoubtedly abused and emotionally neglected, but also really loves the thing that she is being forced to do. Mm. But that doesn't contradict it. If anything, it just makes it murkier and gives it a real depth to it. And I think that's what's particularly interesting in, and I wonder how much Renee Zellweger I think because she is someone who was definitely really kind of like sort of A-list in the mid-90s and early 2000s. Mm. Then definitely sort of like after like Chicago sort of went away for a bit. Yeah, like after that, after she won her Oscar for Cold Mountain, like that was very much the peak. Yeah. And then, yeah, then she kind of, she was still in things, but it seemed as if, 
that she was not you know as central to the culture as she had been for you know like the, the previous decade yeah and there could be so many different reasons behind that but i think definitely sort of discourse and the way things were talked about at that time it definitely feels like she would be at the top of one of those clickbait celebrities where are they now you'll never mm. guess and it's like well maybe she was just a bit tired <laughs> maybe mm. maybe she's like maybe she already also had a lot of money and didn't need to make a lot i don't know we don't know and i think that's the interesting thing about renee zellweger as well like she is someone who has actually been very private in mm. terms of her personal life there was i mean at the peak of her fame there was a lot of an awful lot of speculation and um, tabloidy focus on her relationships and her marriage. And then she came back and I remember, and I'm totally guilty of this, being a bit horrified because it seemed like she'd had quite a lot of plastic surgery. Yeah. Um, particularly around her eyes where they just seemed very different. Because I think Renee Zellweger is interesting because she has such a distinctive face. Mm. And it it seemed like oh has she it is it one of those things where in reaching for trying to look youthful someone has taken away the thing that's unique about them i didn't notice it that much in in judy i don't i don't know but but that was it was and it was a shame that that was the thing that was at the forefront about her being more on the public scene was that she did look different and i was part of that and i'm and i'm sorry but I think what's interesting is that maybe this, I mentioned that because I think this is probably all fed into her performance as Judy. And I think having respect for someone who is such a, a Hollywood icon, but being able to kind of scratch under the surface and see how that actually came to be. Mm. And I, and, and Renee Zellweger is absolutely remarkable as someone who is, so fragile on every level and you realize oh no she wasn't being like a difficult diva on purpose she's someone who's like still utterly traumatized and in a lot of pain <laughs> like it's mm. like psychically emotionally physically and yeah i i i was really taken aback by how much it affected me and how eerie it was at points where renee zellweger actually looked because I, I thought, oh, that's an interesting casting because I wouldn't immediately think of Renee Zellweger as a ringer for Judy Garland. But mm. there were certain points where I was just like, oh my God, you know. And and I think it took maybe five minutes into the film. I wasn't thinking, I'm watching Renee Zellweger. It was, I'm watching Judy Garland. So I think there's something quite... There is a bit of meta-ness, I think, in that I think it's actually very nice to see Renee Zellweger in her like so basically the, the similar age that judy garland is in the film you know it's not like they've taken it's not like they've actually took jesse buckley who does a wonderful job in judy but instead of taking her and aging her up <laughs> mm. even though you know i mean jesse buckley and, and renee zellweger can both sing but you know it was nice to see actually you're casting someone who has the experience and is of the same age and that felt respectful in a meta yeah. way in the respect that judy never really got during her lifetime properly mm. i don't think yeah no i was really taken aback by it is i think it is gonna be one of my films of the year ed yeah oh yeah it's that time again isn't it <laughs> <laughs> i know sorry <laughs> yeah 
uh yeah i've i've made end of year stuff easier on myself in recent years by you know keeping a letterbox list where i'm ranking everything as it goes along and then at the end of the year like i'll shake it around and think okay what what has really kind of lingered with me over the course of the year what's kind of do i keep coming back to yeah. uh, you know then it's a lot easier than what i used to do which would be just like go through every review i wrote on my blog and just be kind of like uh, does this was this one of the best uh, um although i've now committed to doing a top 100 films of the decade and i don't know why um, <laughs> and when i say committed i mean i've thought to myself i should do this and that's just you know I've I've got a long list now that's like 107. I really don't feel like I've scratched the surface, <laughs> yeah. but I'm I'm kind of looking forward to it. I think it's 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 interesting to digress for a second. I think it's it's really interesting like looking back on the decade and thinking like which films that you know at you know in like five or six years ago did I watch and thought oh, that was good that have just been like oh like this is a movie I think about constantly now. Like they've really just kind of stuck with you in like a major way, or like what filmmakers has you have you like your relationship to changed completely over the past like ten years or so? Like I really feel looking at uh you know like lists of best films of the decades that I've really gone off <laughs> Christopher Nolan in a major way, yeah. which uh when I think about you know where I was in like 20 certainly the end of the last decade but even for the first couple of years of of this decade like totally on board the nolan drain and then uh you know like loved everything he'd done in the previous 10 years was really excited to see what he would do in the next 10 years but then like i just hated interstellar so much that like like a uh like a black hole it kind of <laughs> warped warped my entire relationship to his work and even though i quite liked dunkirk and i think that's a really like impressive piece of work like it's i that's one of the things that this past week or so as i've been trying to think about putting together that list where i've just been like oh man it's like it's really weird to kind of take in the totality of the past 10 years yeah yeah yeah, yeah. in uh, terms of uh judy garland as well i think you know, you can't really talk about meta performances or performances where the star is so central to the story being told while talking about her version of A Star is Born, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where there's kind of a very clever bit of narrative jujitsu going on there in that the character that she is playing isn't really necessarily that similar to her in terms of, you know, the, her career, because obviously she was a star from a very young age and had you know like had a a lot more success much earlier in her life than the character that she's playing but her and her um, husband at the time who was her producer um Sid Loft I believe um worked together on that film to add lots of biographical details that were drawn from Judy Garland's life and there was a very clear kind of thing with that production with that performance and with that movie where Judy Garland, you know, she'd been this huge star in the 30s and 40s, the late 40s and 50s had maybe not been as kind to her. And there was this real sense that this was like her big comeback role. And the fact that it was in a movie that was so clearly about someone entering into stardom in like a major way and, you know, casting someone who was so iconic in the history of movies in that role really did seem to have like a strong meta context to them and i think that 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 is something that i think holds true for pretty much all of the 
um the versions of a star is born uh, you can also see that like the the lady gaga one has a lot of kind of like things drawn from her life brought in there and they all have this interesting thing where they're not playing themselves in any way because obviously the characters they're playing are not successful and the people playing them are very successful yeah but it's very clear that they are in some way using the stardom of the the actor playing the role to comment on you know how they view their own stardom yeah absolutely i mean it's funny because i still haven't actually seen like any (laughs) of the uh, versions of a star is born but what's so perfect is even just the kind of understanding and the semiotics around it like judy garland barbara streisand lady gaga like Mm. women who are seen as being cast as being like divas or maybe a bit difficult but like undoubtedly talented and also Mm. i think crucially not like conventionally attractive in in Mm. the in the and I mean this in like the Hollywood woman model. They're all stunning. Yeah. <laughs> They're all absolutely beautiful, but not in a, you know, I don't think you could do a Star is Born with Jennifer Lawrence, for example, and people mm. be as on board with it. Yeah. And I think that that kind of meta element of casting is is really important. Yeah, they all have to be like the librarian wearing the glasses in some respect. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, they all have to have as their basic conceit, like, oh, these like gorgeous women are not quite gorgeous enough in the right way that they would have already become successful given the level of talent they clearly have. Mm-hmm. They need someone to come along and see them and think, yeah, to be the the one person in the room of the 100 to go back to uh, anecdotes of yesteryear um, of awards campaigns past. Do recognizes them and says, you know, you've you've got something. You know, people out there say that you're not kind of uh, conventionally attractive enough to be a success, but I think that your talent surpasses that. And uh, yeah, I think that is kind of crucial to the success, certainly of those versions of the movies. Like, it's hard not did like it's. Like you say, it's hard to imagine it working on quite the same level with you know, like someone who is like obviously fits the Hollywood model of what an attractive person is. Yeah, I mean, like A Star Is Born, I think it was twenty eleven. Clint Eastwood attached direct, and Beyonce set to star. Like, nah, mm. nah, that's yeah, nah. Because <laughs> the whole point yeah. is that a star is a star is born. Like, it's not like they're um. Oh yeah waiting to be discovered exactly or like they're, they're just kind of like on a low burn <laughs> yeah 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 totally because yeah because i think yeah beyonce like you could believe oh yeah like someone would see her and think oh yeah this is a star but you would like find it hard to think oh that this didn't happen when she was a teenager because that's exactly what happened that's to- exactly what happened to her <laughs> yeah 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 totally in terms of you know i think uh, one of the things that came up a lot in looking at roles like this is um or movies that use actors in this particular way, there's obviously, there's often cases where actors are playing kind of artists in other fields or performers in other fields and how that can lend a certain tension to things and a certain like meta quality. The one that really leapt out to me uh, was Mickey Rourke in The Wrestler, where Mm. 
there's obviously and there's also uh, Mr. Tomei Tome in the uh, wrestler as well you know that, that, that has a, a big part in this as well but you know both of those performances are people you know who have been acting for decades and decades people who in the movie are playing people in uh, professions that are about the commodification of their body and in term, uh, their performance really kind of like tied into their physicality both in the movie and in their jobs but in the case of Mickey Rourke you know there is such this there is a lot of power to the fact that he you know at that point we uh, was someone who had been a huge you know huge star in his early days had been kind of renowned for this kind of earthy quality that he brought to a lot of his roles but also just being incredibly handsome like a real kind of like matinee idol who was also a terrific actor who um kind of fell off in the early 90s started doing a lot of roles that um really weren't worthy of him kind of got his face really messed up by taking up boxing and then having a load of reconstructive surgery to fix the problems which just kind of made him work made it worse so by the time he took on that role and you know in the wrestler where he was playing a he was given a part that was you know kind of really challenging to him for the first time in a long time and a director who really wanted to push him in in Darren Aronofsky there was um, a level of vulnerability that I think hadn't really been seen from him in a while and a lot of that is maybe tied into the fact that he is being forced to play someone who is also kind of like beaten down by the profession that they're in someone whose body is kind of like failing them and I think that is you know like that that is a role and a you know a movie again that you you could imagine it working with another actor well enough but the fact that Mickey Rourke had been such a tabloid fixture for such a long time and someone who had been the butt of so many jokes. Um, I always think of the joke from an episode of Black Books where Fran says, oh, look at what Mickey Rourke has done. His face looks like his trousers. <laughs> like, th- without that kind of relationship between the role, the actor and the audience, that movie i think it loses a lot of its a lot of its power yeah it's a shame we will never know who wrote black books just dylan moran on his own i'm pretty sure yeah i think it was i think it was just the cast <laughs> i <laughs> i love the wrestler i remember watching it again back in the showroom uh the mm-hmm. the point the origin point for for uh our film continuum ed and mm-hmm. um i remember being so struck by it at the at the time and i think I completely agree with everything you've said there. And I think what's also interesting about The Wrestler is that it's not just a portrait of like really uh, sort of fractured, toxic masculinity that's trying to get itself, get its act together. But long before I think toxic masculinity was ever really like a phrase that we used and long before Bojack Horseman, um, (laughs) it also shows it like it's a portrait to me of what, a certain kind of thirst for both male and female bodies in America. Like that's a contemporary Mm. relationship because it's not just Mickey Rourke, it's Marisa Tomei as well. Yeah. And there is no, it's no coincidence that they are filmed the same way as Rourke goes out into the ring and Tomei goes out on stage as a, um, as a dancer, um, an erotic dancer. It's exactly the same. Like, and I think there's an awful lot of like, really quite poignant empathy in looking at those 
extremes of gen- mm. gendered public performance. And I think, I really hope that The Wrestler gets, I don't feel like it really got its due at the time. Um, mm. And I feel like it's one that is worth a retrospective. And I think looking back on Aronofsky's career, particularly with the stuff he's been making recently, it will be, I think, looked on. I think I just think I think it's really smart and I think it's really heartfelt but like not a sentimental heart like a heart that's pumping with fear and blood and love all at once and mm. I think Marisa Tomei as well is perfect casting for that because again she is gorgeous and she looks her age like it's like it's yes. no, like and and both of them look their age both of them show their battle scars like all all mm. over themselves because again you could cast Evan Rachel Wood as the young like you know the young ingenue stripper but no it's it's more interesting and plausible and gives more to the cause that evan rachel wood is the is the daughter Mm. yeah i i think that film is so great and going on from that another aronofsky film which is um great and i think pretty much the last one he made before he started going a little bit the rails uh black Mm. swan and winona Ryder. now yes she has she's not in the film for a huge amount of its running time but she comes in and she is just such a fantastic warning turning point and i feel like she just hovers and haunts throughout the rest of the film she is incredible and her whole raison d'etre as her character is this former hot talk of the town dancer she's like everyone will chew you up and spit you out you're not actually eternal (laughs) Mm. you won't transcend um you are just one in the long line and i'm here on the other end of the line just warning you but also she's bitter because she can see what she's lost and so it's this really i think really brilliant snapshot of a very of a very kind of bitter feminine like interpersonal relationship like i'm the sort of the older sister who's going to be a bitch to you because part of me cares for you but the other part of me hates you because i wish i sort of hate my that part of myself (laughs) it's all Mm. uh so much is done in so little time and winona Ryder is absolutely perfect in it she because she manages to look like there's something she does with her body where she manages to look incredibly frail but totally like sprung and manic all at once to the point where you feel like she could just throw Natalie Portman against the wall mm. um, and and then I, I feel like Winona Ryder like, and it's the same with her in Stranger Things as well and she sort, sort of off the back of um, Renee Zellweger again Winona Ryder sort of like late 80s early 90s was such a peak cultural figure like the sort of goth teenage dream um mm. and and brilliant in in beetlejuice and heathers in girl interrupted so definitely was this kind of like kind of counterculture-ish figure and, and, and wide-eyed but like but smart and and, mm. and kind of an outsider and i always think it's interesting when you have particularly an actress who is seen as like an outsider in this incredibly like elite exclusive um sort of world but then when Ryder coming into stranger things and being and being the mum 
kind of in a in a time canonic in a canonical story world in which she was actually a teenager and how she just absolutely she doesn't even just add to the nostalgia i think she's like the core kind of lightning rod for it Mm. because there's something strangely like uncanny and comforting all at once to see her inhabit that kind of time period again um yeah but but because so much of that show like hinges on nostalgia and I remember when it came out before it became like the phenomenon that it is now and Winona Ryder was like the name attached mm-hmm. so I think without and, and and I think her name became synonymous and it's meta not just for an audience but for a business and a marketing thing Winona Ryder in a spooky series that involves a bunch of kids in the 80s it's like well yeah people are more likely to get on board as well yeah yeah I think also to go back to Black Swan I think it's interesting that you know there is an extra kind of meta thing with her having kind of a rivalry with Natalie Portman in that both of them have fairly similar careers uh, trajectories but you know like 15 years apart or whatever like both uh, starring kind of like critically beloved acclaimed movies at an, uh, a young age become yeah. kind of very um, iconic for you know different generations and, and that that sense again I think there's also uh, you know also there's a bit of this with with the wrestler as well that sense of you know trying to find metaphorical ways for, for the way for the way in which um, Hollywood chews through actors in general but particularly uh, women because. Yeah with the like the marissa tomei character in the rest of the you know she and mickey rourke have a kind of a connection because like say they're both in this this industry in these industries where spectacle of the human body is such an important thing but they also are people who feel as if they're approaching their sell by date you know there's a point at which they won't be able to do their roles anymore because people won't want to see them doing it and there's a kind of an undercurrent of like yeah that expiry date probably comes up for female exotic dancers sooner than it does for uh male wrestlers yeah you know much as it as, as it happens in hollywood with uh just actors in general yeah for sure uh to kind of like uh go back to kind of like blockbusters uh in, in uh, you know as we were talking earlier with gemini man um, one of the obviously Will Smith is casting that movie because he has a certain relationship with audiences and people have seen him age on screen quite a bit so it, it makes sense that you would need to cast someone in both those roles where people remember what they looked like they were young and uh, Ang Lee said that he could only make that movie with two actors one of which would be Will Smith and the other would be Tom Cruise and the interesting thing I think with Tom Cruise is like a lot of his more recent work but especially the Mission Impossible films which have become his like signature franchise at this point there is kind of like a meta quality to to everything he's doing in that it feels like um, his performances in there are really commenting on his persona as you know kind of like the last real action hero standing um, in the terms of being someone who is an undeniable star someone whose success is predicated at least part on their kind of like their ineffable star quality and charisma but also on this whole thing about you know him performing all the stunts himself putting himself in harm's way and injuring himself in ways that um 
are you know i think it's it's a grim joke at this point that pretty much everyone seems to expect that he's just gonna die on set one day because (laughs) that just seems to be the way that it's going but so much of that series is tied up in his physicality and his performances and you know what his body can do in service of entertaining audiences but the, the plots of those movies particularly the most recent one fallout increasingly hinge upon this idea of him being like pretty much the one thing that's stopping the entire world from uh, spiraling completely into chaos and it's not hard to read that as kind of like a meta thing for just like all hollywood blockbuster filmmaking like as soon as he's done like then there's no one left who you could point to and say that's a person who just through sheer force of their presence will be able to open a movie and i kind of think it's funny how increasingly the movies have kind of like emphasized that you also see a lot of it in ghost protocol where the entire plot of the movie seems to be pointing to oh yeah like he's getting ready to step away from it and then a younger star like jeremy renner can step in and then at the end of the movie it's like no no no, i'm i'm the guy who does this uh and i think that's quite interesting that the that is you know a hugely successful massive series that has really kind of like uh turned into that and i think there's probably not a coincidence that it started doing that when christopher mcquarrie got involved because he's always seemed to be someone who really enjoys putting meta commentary into his works and yeah. having a bit of fun with that sort of stuff for sure i guess like the more we're talking about this i'm wondering the long how long we can go without maybe mentioning quentin tarantino but i think I've probably <laughs> i think uh can't really think of much of his casting that isn't based upon who you sort of already know because he he was kind mm. of you know he was credited with sort of restarting various people's careers and yeah. but based on like a kind of embrace of what they'd done before like you know mm. Travolta in Pulp Fiction and all of that and like once upon a time in Hollywood having, you know, Leo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, but then, you know, it's not like their careers needed restarting and in terms of meta-ness. Mm, he almost had a more meta one in that with Burt Reynolds, because yeah. Burt Reynolds was meant to be in it playing the part that ended up going to Bruce Dern, but obviously he uh, passed away before that could happen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, I think you can see that in, like, um, I think Kurt Russell in Death Proof and also in... Um, Hateful Eight, I think, has a little bit of that. Like, there is definitely an awareness of his star persona in that casting, particularly in The Hateful Eight, which is very... draws heavily upon, like, the atmosphere of the thing in the sense of it being, um, you know, like, a bunch of people trapped in a single location and it's really cold outside mm-hmm. and some of the score is some of Ennio Morricone's unused bits that he wrote for the thing. So, like, casting Kurt Russell in that movie obviously has, like, uh, echoes of that earlier movie in there. And, yeah, like, his whole... Uh, Tarantino's whole thing has always been about, you know, the, the concept of the movie movie. These are movies that characters in other movies would go and watch and uh that i think really does extend to the casting in a lot of ways for a lot of those sort of roles where he's thinking who would fit this role and also like who would be would audience find kind of like interesting in this casting either because it goes against type or because it kind of reminds them of stuff they've done in the past yes 
the last example I had, because I was trying, I realised when we were talking about this, like a lot of these are very Western, um, perhaps unsurprisingly, because obviously we're both we're both English, we both mm-hmm. have, we're both steeped in in those cultures, and also in Hollywood movies, like that's what a lot of things you you just inherently draw on. Um, but I thought an interesting example of someone who whose work very much kind of commented on where they were in their lives is, is uh, Takeshi Kitano, uh, who uh, people in, in the West uh, is best known, you know, obviously for his the movies that he directs himself and uh, for being in Takeshi's Castle. Um, that's I think that's probably the thing in England he's most known for at this time. But yeah. obviously during the 90s, he was kind of a big force in world cinema. He, the, uh, a lot of his movies from the early 90s are rightly regarded as classics. Um, but one of the things I thought was quite interesting in thinking about him is that um, during the early 90s, he suffered from a kind of very, very strong uh, bout of depression. Mm. And his movies from around that time of these kind of like really existential gangster movies, most notably Sonatine, probably is his masterpiece, and uh, Boiling Point, which are these kind of people who are professionals, who are like amazing at what they do, who are, who are kind of like going through the motions are kind of detached from the world and it's really interesting to me watching those movies and even though you know they're not necessarily commenting on what he, directly what he was going through at the time uh knowing that he was like really really depressed and like he was kind of expressing that through those movies does add a certain uh extra layer to them, yeah. knowing that he was going through a real kind of like dark period in his life and uh his movies weren't just kind of like dark and violent because those were the kind of movies he made but because he was you know just kind of trying to deal with things that were going on in his head yeah did you have any other examples no i think that's i mean the only thing is lisa kudrow in the comeback but i think that's a bit too there's not really anything to say because it's just so direct Mm. (laughs) it's a great performance though and it is i think it really does uh benefit from it being her like not only someone who's you know kind of like a great actor in their own right but someone who you know the audience have that relationship to her from seeing her on television for so long in such a big famous role mm. and being someone who then is like well what happens when that role ends and you have to try and like continue going with your life yeah yeah so we end this episode as we end all our episodes with Shot vs. Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Is it sacrilege to recommend another podcast, Ed? It's probably fine. Okay. They could probably use the boost. All right, don't... <laughs> of from, our reach. From, from our... Yeah. We'll do them a favour. Don't <laughs> tell Matt. Okay. We'll be fine. So I'm going to recommend the most recent episode of Films to be Buried With, which is Mm. hosted by Brett Goldstein, who by his own description is a comedian, director, writer, lanyard. And it's a podcast I've been meaning to listen to for a while because it's got that lovely structure of basically having uh, more often than not, I think it's a comedian or an actor on and using the framework of... um, asking various questions like what's the first film that you remember seeing uh you're actually you're actually dead uh sorry to inform you but we're gonna talk about your life uh through the films that you like and it's always really nice hearing uh other people talk about 
and not necessarily people who make films <laughs> do you know what mm. I mean because I think so often I just get like like listening to the Directors Guild um podcast and it's and it's lovely hearing about people who who make films but people who are actually audience members <laughs> I don't feel like there's mm. enough of that chat like um rather than being like critics it's like no these this is the majority of, of any and I don't count myself as as a critic as or someone who makes films even though I did have a uh, a dalliance with both of those things in my early 20s um so it's really nice to hear people who are renowned for doing other things talking about films that they love as audience members but this episode in particular I think is um it's incredibly moving um it's an interview the guest of the week is Jordan Brooks who is a comedian that uh, I think uh, I, I think his work is uh, spectacular um and he recently won the um Edinburgh Comedy Award the Dave Comedy Award um but he's incredibly vulnerable and quite upfront about the really quite severe mental health difficulties he's been having this year and there's something about um listening to someone who is essentially having just a very big year both in terms of success and and depression <laughs> um mm. and just from a very human level what it's like to to deal with that and also he just loves Snetsky New York and 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 it gets talked about in at length in detail because uh, he mentions it several times as, as his answer <laughs> for various film questions so that was just going to be me on board with it anyway um but yeah that's the most recent episode of films to be buried with cool uh I am going to recommend a film. I'm going to recommend Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. Oh, I want to see it, Ed! I want to get it in my face. And that's probably all I'm going to say about it. It's not that it's like a movie... It's not that it's a movie that's like massively heavy on twists. It's just that it's very surprising in the way that a lot of Bong Joon-ho's work is, in the way that he balances different genres and tones. And like that that i think that to me was one of the like real nice pleasures of it is that i kind of went in with very little sense of what the movie was about and it was kind of thrilling going on that journey of you know going on on going through a story not really knowing the direction that it was going to go but always feeling as if the person who was making the movie was very clear about what they wanted to do with it you know like you you really feel as if you're in the hands of uh, a master who knows what they're doing which obviously John uh, Bong Joon-ho does because he's a brilliant director who's made lots of brilliant movies this is probably my f- this is probably my favorite film of the year at this point obviously there's still no. movies to come uh like uncut gems which I'm very very excited about but uh it's it's I think it's it's one of Bong Joon-ho's best uh it's just a really really terrific movie great cast everyone's good in it and I left the theater really a buzz and like, oh man, I watched a really, really good movie. So uh, yeah, so if if you have a chance, uh, if you're in the US and uh, it's playing near you, which I think it is for a lot of places now because it's on reasonably wide release over here for a you know a Korean movie, uh, go and see it. Uh, if you're in the UK, uh, check it out when it debuts next year because it is great. 7th of February, my UK crew. Whether the UK will even exist at that point is another question, <laughs> but uh, sorry, the evenings are getting darker and so am I. Mm, yeah. Let's just, can we 
write to Corbyn and ask him if he can move the release date up if he gets in. I feel like that would really it's my one. bolster. <laughs> you know how some policy, like some parties are one policy, like literally just like get the bins taken out every week. I'm like earlier parasite release. Mm, yeah, I think that'll really help in the marginals in the Midlands. Oh, 100%. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places. Uh, Raters, reviewers, and recommend it to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Thanks. Bye.